you would please open in the Bible to Ephesians. We are beginning to wrap up our study of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. It's on page 979 in the Pew Bible. If you would please stand. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray you would please send your powerful spirit upon us, that you would pry open our cold, resistant hearts and give us grace that we might hear your word, Father, as you speak to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you don't mind, keep your uh, Bibles open, if you have them open, to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. I'll be making reference... Uh, to that passage several times, and it'd be good if you uh, had it there to see that I'm not making it up. Uh, This is actually God's word to us, and uh, it's his message, not mine, that's really important. Uh, That's really a very basic principle here at Metrocrest, is uh, we believe that uh, God speaks to his church through the Bible, and so uh, what we talk about every Lord's Day is always a message from him. It's a message from the Lord who has called us to himself. And that really is important when we come to a passage like, well, the one we're looking at today and the one we've been looking, the ones we have been looking at for the past several weeks. Uh, All through Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is developing this theme about walking in love. And he defines uh, a little bit generally about what that means. And then he proceeds to uh, give uh, his apostolic word through a lot of different relationships, situations, some of which are a little touchy. Uh, These are not necessarily topics I would want to talk about, but these are the topics in the book of Ephesians that Paul wanted to talk about. So he's setting the agenda here. He's the one who's walking us through these topics. And a part of me wants to say that any disagreement we have about these topics We need to look at them in light of what the scriptures say, uh, in light of what Paul has to teach us, in light of what the rest of the Bible has to say. And that very much applies to the passage we're looking at this morning. Um, You'll see it there. We read through it. The ESV editors have called it bond servants and masters. And it has to do with a particular area of life where Paul calls us to walk in love. 
Uh, we talked about walking in love at home, both as spouses, husbands and wives, and as parents uh, and children. Uh, we talked about what that looks like. Uh, Paul gives us principles. He doesn't deal with every exception. He gives us overarching principles. And he says that we should walk in love in this way. That's the way we walk out the amazing promises that Paul told us about in Ephesians chapters 1 to 4. He's really calling us to live out what he's already taught us in our relationships with the people in our lives. You know, uh, today we're going to be talking about the way we walk in love at work. Um, There is an amazing revolution in the idea of work a few centuries ago. Through a lot of church history, uh, there was a great emphasis put on the vocation of church life. In fact, the word vocation uh, had a particular application among those who were called to be priests or bishops or deacons in the church, those who were called to be monks or nuns. In fact, the word vocation has its roots in that religious aspect of community life in a long stretch of church history. And there was uh, almost a sense that everything else was a bracket or a footnote and that where you really lived out the Christian life was among those who lived the religious life, the, the life of ordered structure in service to the church. And everything else was hardly worth discussing. Well, in the time of the Reformation, that was radically rethought. And one of the great leaders in rethinking that was the German monk Martin Luther, who had a great deal to say. And one of the things he commented on was this idea of work. And he wrote a, a, little, a lot about this. Uh, He wrote a particular work called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And uh, in it, he described the idea of work, and he particularly described the life of the religious vocation that was so common. He himself had been a monk. He'd had a religious vocation. And so he wrote about it, and this is what he had to say. He says, I advise no one to enter any religious order or the priesthood. Indeed, I advise everyone against it unless he is forearmed with this knowledge and understands that the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. So what he did was he he knocked the underpinnings out of this elevated, exaggerated view of religious service as the place where you lived out your Christian life. He, He sort of wanted to lower that in terms of some exaggerated importance, and exalt and lift up the ordinary work of of people like laborers and moms in their kitchens. He said all this work is measured in faith in God. That's what was really important, Martin Luther said. 
And he wrote it not only here, but he wrote it in other places. And that became a kind of a driving theme of the Reformation, along with all the other things we've studied, all the other things we know about revival and reformation of the church. This change in the attitude towards work in some ways was even more pervasive than some of the other changes we think about. Uh, All work gained a new dignity, a new status. And right across Europe, as the Reformation spread, uh, you saw more and more of this, more and more emphasis on the importance of everyday life, everyday work. And as Luther was doing that, he was actually echoing Paul. Because when Paul was describing what it meant to walk in love, he actually goes to the basic Uh, relationships, the basic experiences of human life. And he says, that's where you walk in love. You walk in love at home with your family. That's where you're living out your Christian discipleship. It's not by living away in a monastery or a convent where you're free to do nothing but meditate all day. He actually said, where you live out your Christian life at home is in your relationship with your spouse and with your children. Uh, In your relationships with other human beings, that's where you live out your relationship at home. It's in this this very ordinary, matter-of-fact way. And yes, there may be those who who spend time in special vocations for a season or because of 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 a calling. But Paul said, don't do that unless you're clear that that work is no more precious to the Lord, no more important to the Lord than the mom cleaning up the kitchen dishes and the family joining in to help. That's, that's the work, that's the, the at-home living out of the love of God that we've read about in Ephesians chapters 1 to 4. And now he moves on to another area of ordinary day-to-day life. And then this is another thing that I suspect probably 100% of us understand. It has to do with walking in love at that place where you spend most of your time every week when you're not asleep. It's called work. And just as Martin Luther had emphasized the holiness of the work of of moms at home or or, uh, uh, rustic workers in the field, uh, I believe that what he's giving us here is, is is an important, essential word for us Uh, as we live out our life in Christ at work. Now, I want to draw your attention to one thing. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 5 in this translation begins uh, bond servants. I'll say more about that in a moment. But many translations use the word slaves. And in fact, the King James Version, which I was raised on, refers to slaves. It's a common translation of the Greek word that lies behind this. I want to say a word about slavery. Uh, Some of you will have seen in the uh, Dallas Morning News for this morning, it says modern slavery exists. Slavery is a thing today. And there's a lengthy article describing the ongoing reality of people who are enslaved today. It is a continuing issue in the life of the world. And many people are so offended by the idea of slavery that they won't listen to what Paul has to say. Uh, 
the logic sometimes goes, and you'll bump into this into other, many other translations, uh, but the logic goes, if Paul wouldn't take a stand against slavery, then I'm not going to listen to Paul. And there are, there are more than a few people who use that criticism to dismiss other things Paul has to say. He didn't take a stand on this issue. And of course, here in 2022, whether we're talking about continuing slavery today or slavery in the past, it riles us. It disturbs us. I mean, for me as a young man grew up in Mississippi in the Deep South, I immediately think of chattel slavery in the 1800s that our country fought a war over. And that's what is called to my mind when we think of slavery. And there are a lot of people who, for that very reason, can't really listen to what Paul has to say. Well, that's too bad. Because actually what Paul has to say has deep relevance to us today. This side of the war against slavery and this side of the ongoing commitment to eradicate slavery, this actually is a timely word for us just as much today as ever. Uh, One little thing I'll mention about the Reformation. Along with Martin Luther's radical change in the idea of what work means generally, Along at the same time, there was another guy elsewhere in Europe, a French speaker named John Calvin. And John Calvin preached and taught the scriptures and theology in the city of Geneva. He had a wide-ranging career of leading a huge Bible study, in fact, a huge series of Bible studies. Well, John Calvin did a Bible study on Ephesians. And when John Calvin came to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, his notes are preserved. John Calvin, in the middle of the 16th century, in the 1500s, said that slavery, as it was practiced at the time, he said, was an aberration. It was sinful and wrong. In the 1500s, a Christian preacher was looking and realizing that that the context in which Paul was writing was a context of sin. In fact, Paul, what Calvin said was that Paul was describing the sinful impact of the world in which Paul lived and in which John Calvin lived and in which you and I live. That's not a reason to dismiss Paul. That's a reason to listen to Paul. See, what actually Paul does here is he lays down the building blocks and John Calvin picked up on this. What what Paul was doing was laying down the building blocks, the relational building blocks that led to the abolition of slavery. It was men and women who were shaped by the Scriptures, who were relationally attuned with the Scriptures, who over time led the end of slavery. One One of my great heroes is a man named William Wilberforce. And among English-speaking Christians, Wilberforce stands out. Uh, He was actually a a century or two after John Calvin. He lived in England. He was a member of Parliament. And and William Wilberforce was shaped by not only Christian piety, but specifically by evangelical Christianity. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace that we all know. Well, uh, John Newton, who was himself a former slave trader, had been brought to a place where he saw that slavery was, was a sinful human device that should be ended. 
Well, John Newton taught William Wilberforce through their friendship, and Wilberforce became an opponent of slavery in the British Empire. And every year, as a member of parliament, every year William Wilberforce would stand up and introduce a bill in parliament to end slavery. And over and over and over again, because of the sinful situation in his day, it was defeated again and again and again and again and again. Until finally, at the end of William Wilberforce's career, not long before he died, Parliament passed a bill that ended slavery in the British Empire in the early 1800s. It ended it in the British Empire. That was an evangelical Christian shaped by what the Scriptures teach. So what Paul is describing here, brothers and sisters, if you're opposed to slavery, is not a reason to dismiss him. It's a reason to listen carefully to what he has to say about this fundamental relationship, this fundamental experience that all of us have, this idea of work. Because what he lays down here will help us to better understand how we actually live out our Christian life in the real world, the sinful world where we live as well. So I hope, uh, I hope we're all listening together to what Paul has to say about work. Now, unless you happen to be independently wealthy, or unless you happen to be retired, tomorrow you're probably going to put on your adult clothes and go to work. Right? We all do that. We all go to work somewhere. We all know what it's like to work. And Paul is here describing what this work relationship looks like. Now, he uses the word in chapter 6, verse 5, bondservants. I told you I'd like to look at that word. A bit further along, if you look further down in uh, verse 9, he uses the word master. Those words may sound a little old-fashioned to us. Uh, bondservant, that's a, that's a, a translation of, the, of a particular Greek word, and master is a translation of a particular Greek word. The translator is trying to bring these Greek words written down a long time ago into our time frame, and so they, they use these words to translate them. If you look on page um, number 8, you'll actually see a, a Greek translation of the Bible. Uh, look down at chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, in Greek, at the bottom of the page on uh, page 8. You'll notice verse 5, it's highlighted there for you. It says, oi douloi. And look a little further down at verse 9. Kai oi kurioi. Now, Colton and I are going to have an exam tomorrow. As part of, of our work day tomorrow, Colton Huckabee and I are going to be taking an exam in, in Greek. One, our first exam. And in fact, Lesson one at Greek at Reformed Theological Seminary Dallas taught me both of these words. Douloi and kurioi. Douloi, as any Greek one student can tell you, means several things in English. It does mean slave, it does mean bondservant, but it also means servant. Back tomorrow, our teacher said we could put down either slave or servant and it'll be counted correct. And the word translated master can be translated master, but you know the way we usually know the word kurioi? Uh, it's accompanied with a the, or the word 
uh, ha, H or O with a breathing mark on it, which means the Lord, ha, kurio. That's where we get the idea of the Lord. And that's one of the translations. When you've got it with the article, kurio refers to Jesus or to God as he's described in the Old Testament. Uh, the Lord for a believing person is, is the Lord God. But without that singular article or with the plural article as we see here today, kurioi was just another Greek word that meant the person in charge. So if you were a field worker and your boss tells you to do something, you're dealing with your kurioi. He was your master. He was the person who told you what to do. And similarly, in the system of the day, the person who took instructions, the person who takes direction, is a same the idea of the Greek word here, which we see embedded to this day, was douloi. So what really Paul is describing is not limited to one social structure or one economic system. In Paul's day, there were literally slaves, and Paul was talking to literally slaves. And there were masters who, who were literally slave masters. So that his context included that. But it wasn't just that. He was talking to a situation, a system that included all kinds of human relationships. And what I want to suggest to you for our purposes today is wherever Paul is using this word kurioi to describe master or douloi to describe servant, you could just as easily put into those places and take application from them in this sense. That a bond servant is anyone who takes instructions, anyone who does a job, anyone who has a job to uh, take directions from someone, an employee in other words, or a master, a kurioi, uh, is someone who uh, receives, ins- who gives instructions to other people. So that's the way I'm going to be looking at it today because I think in our context, what Paul has to say here has real life modern day application in our system, just as much as it ever has. Here is a word for us as well. And as we look at these things, I hope you'll see that Paul's actually speaking into our world, into our life, just as much as he did to those who first received his letter in Ephesus. That's the way I'd like to approach it with you. Servants and masters, employees and employers. You are most likely either an employee or an employer. And in fact, more than a few of us have both relationships. Maybe part of our job is to, to give instructions to other people, and part of our job is to receive direction from other people. Our very complex modern economic system puts a lot of us in that sort of situation. But what he's going to describe here is a way to walk in love in this ongoing experience that we all share. What you're going to do tomorrow when you go to work Paul's going to give us here some words of how there, in those relationships, we can live out the love of God in Christ. All right? So with all that said, let's look at what he has to say. First of all, to employees, to servants. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ." Now let's pause for a moment. One thing Paul is introducing here into our understanding of our work life and how we walk in love at work is that we have a new 
boss. We have a new person with authority over us. And that person is not merely our human manager, the, the, the line chief, uh, the person who double checks our work or sends us that, those memos we hate to get during the work week telling us something we're supposed to do. What Paul wants to emphasize is that we have a, another boss. And that boss is Christ. Jesus is the person who directs us, who gives us direction and instructions in life. Whatever our job may be, the person with authority over us ultimately is not the guy in the corner office or the woman in the corner office. The person with supreme authority over me and over you is Jesus. He is our boss. He is our true kurios. He is the one who gives us ultimate instructions. And Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. As he speaks to you, you will live that out in terms of how you show respect to your earthly master, to your earthly employer. Now, you may not think of your employer as a master. I hope not. Some of us have jobs where it's very easy for us to think of our earthly boss as a master. Maybe that's the way this person runs the office. More than a few of us have had that experience. Well, Paul's not talking about those, necessarily those instructions. Although, Paul was actually writing to people that included those who couldn't leave their job. One of the things about a slave or a bondservant, a bondservant was someone who had sold himself or herself uh, into a sort of a relationship where they, they weren't free to go. They had, they had that kind of indebtedness they had to pay off. And so a bondservant or a, or a slave was not free to go. And yet Paul has this word to say to them. Again, not to take into account every exception. There are always exceptions. We'd have to look at the exceptions one by one. But he's saying generally what you should do, those who are working as employees, is submit yourself to your employer. Obey them. And do it as you would Christ, because he's our ultimate manager, boss, Lord. I wonder if that's the way you look at your work. I, I don't think in my uh, working life, I've always maintained that attitude. I don't know I've always looked at my, the person over me in the office or the person over me in my job, whatever it might be, was somehow someone I was told to obey out of obedience to Jesus. And in fact, I think our culture pushes against that idea. Right? I mean, we're, we're the, the age of organizing for our rights. We're the age of, of not submitting to anybody. Well, Paul has a word for us in this context. Again, it, I'm not saying it deals with every exception, every difficult case. But, but for most of us, what Paul is challenging us to do is have a higher view of those who are over us in the Lord. That we're, we're to look at our job as a place in which we live out our relationship with Christ. That'll really transform the way we look at our job. That what I'm doing here is for my boss, Jesus. The way I perform my job is the way I live out my walk with him. Because he's ultimately the one I'm accountable to. I think when I was a young person working in an office, that would have been a radically different way of looking at my job. 
Well, that seems to be the point of view Paul is presenting to us. To think of our job as a place where we walk out that obedience to Christ. Obey your earthly masters with... He actually uses the word fear and trembling. And this is the word he uses, Paul uses, to describe the way we live out our salvation. He actually says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's, it, it's, a, it's an attitude of reverence and an attitude of, of deep commitment and respect. It's not really meant to describe terror. You don't work out your salvation with terror. But you live out this relationship at work with this reverence, this earnestness, what he calls fear and trembling. He, calls, he describes it as having a sincere heart at work. Do you have a sincere heart at work? Paul says we should have a sincere heart as we would with Christ. So there's a new boss. Part of what Paul's describing about our life at work is that we have a new boss. Whatever our job may be, whether it's, uh, as, as Luther says, working in the field as a laborer or, or a, a, a housewife or whatever our job may be, we have a new boss. We have a new person to whom we're accountable. And we live out our walk with him in the way we do our work. So we have a new boss. But we don't only have a new boss, we also have a new standard. He says... Um, to do this as it was for Jesus, as, as, as we would do for Jesus. The, the standard isn't just enough to get by. He calls it uh, not, not just people-pleasing or eye service. We have a new standard at work in the Christian life. We're to perform our, our, our work, whatever it may be, not simply to get by, not merely to do the minimum that we have to do, but we're to do what we do as though it were for him. And Luther had the example of, of someone sweeping up. And he said, sweep up as for the Lord. I, I mean, I think that would affect the way I swept up. <laughs> uh, not just enough to the bare minimum, not just enough to you know, satisfy whoever happened to be look over my shoulder. I think that's probably the way I in my youth especially, approached work is the minimum I could get away with. Well, Paul applies a different standard to whatever our work may be. He says, do whatever it is you're doing as though you're doing it for Jesus because he is ultimately our boss. He is ultimately the person we're reporting to. And we're to do our work according to this new standard, which is to do it as though it were for him. Because ultimately it is. It's part of our witness to him. It's part of the way we show other people uh, how we are walking in love and how our life with Christ makes a difference. So whatever your job may be, you have a new standard, a new higher standard. Not something we have to do in order to earn God's favor. That's one of the problems with the so-called Protestant work ethic. Uh, we get it into our heads that we, that we have something to earn. And I guess there is a school of thought in some Protestant churches where we've got something we've got to earn God's favor. It's not like that. It's as though we're doing it for someone who deeply loves us and whom we deeply love, and we show our gratitude to that person by doing it in a certain way. Not to earn his favor, but because he has lavished his favor upon us. And if we really take that to heart it, heart, it will shape the way we do everything. 
So it's a, it's a different way of thinking about it. And Paul says, not only do we have a new boss and a new standard, but we, we actually have a new reward, a new incentive. You know, I, I think um, in a lot of my work life, I always had a raise in view, right? I, I wanted to do a good job because it might translate into more money for me. Well, that's not a bad motive, but it's not the motive that, that Paul is describing. Paul, in verse 8, describes a radically different motive, a radically different reward. He says, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. In other words, the ultimate reward for the work we do is not a raise. It's not even the, necessarily the, the, the pleasure of our manager, employer, boss, master. Ultimately, what we're aiming to do is to do it in a way that it pleases the one who has given himself for us. Out of gratitude to him, we want to do those things which bring glory to him. And so he will be the rewarder of what we do. Whether our earthly managers or masters or bosses see it and approve of it or not, God will reward those who seek to do their work in light of what Jesus has done for them. So what Paul is describing about the workplace is a radically different way of looking at the workplace. It, it exalts all kind of work, which is exciting and revolutionary if you think about it, but it also brings these new ways of thinking about the work we're doing, that we're doing it as for him, that we're, we're doing it to seek the pleasure that we bring him, the glory that we bring him. That becomes the motive for what we do at work. And I, I, I really encourage you to think about that this week at work. Go about doing whatever it is you've been given to do. Think about it that way. Think about your employment as, as the context in which you're giving witness to the Jesus you say you love. It's at work. Walking in love there at work. And so Paul brings this challenging word. It is a challenging word to the employee. It's saying to everyone who takes directions from anyone else, this is what your work should be about, whether you're a, a, a master or a bondservant, a free person or a person who's working for others. Uh, this is a word for all of you. So it is a challenging word. It's meant to be. And then in verse 9, he does something else. He, he turns from talking to those who take direction to those who give direction. Look what he says in verse 9. And we'll see, we see this pattern Throughout Paul's words here in Ephesians, he says, Masters, do the same to them. We've seen this before. Paul will lay out the description of a demanding task that he gives to one half of an equation. And then he turns to the other side of the equation. He says, now you do this demanding task. And in this case, what he says is, Masters, you do exactly what I just said that employees should do. You employers, you do exactly the same thing in your way that they're called to do 
in their way. Do the same. It's interesting that he, he reduces a whole lot of words to a simple sentence. You do the same. The whole category of people, the top of the, of the food chain in his society, he said, now you do what I just said for all the employees and the, the bond servants and even the slaves to do. You approach from that same viewpoint. And you know, when Paul said it, that was not a particularly controversial thing to say. I don't think there were a lot of people who would have taken issue with the idea of employees work hard. That wouldn't have been particularly controversial. And all the other motivations and the new things he had to say about work, that would have been radical. But the, the instruction, the, the direction, the guidance and counsel to an employer to work, employee to work hard would not be all that radical. But you know what was radical? To say the, to the power people, to the people in charge, to the, to, the, to the guy, to say to the guy, you do what I just said the slaves are supposed to do. You do the same things. You, you submit yourself to this new boss. You now live according to this new standard. You too now look for this new motivation, this new reward that stirs you to obedience. You do the same things. And he says this to the kurioi. Another, another translation for kurioi could be king. To the, to the top people in the society, the culture. He says to them, kings and queens and lords and ladies and masters, bosses, powerful people, you now live your life in that relationship with Jesus Christ. And he singles out a couple of things very specifically. He says to them that they're to stop threatening. Stop threatening. That's, boy, if, if uh, all the employers of the world were to repent of threatening and a way of speaking that was held that power over people, that, that would transform lots of workplaces. Knowing, he says, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He just reminded them of basically the same thing he's just said. Everything I just said about the lowest employer, the lowest employee, the, the bottom of the food chain, the, the newest intern, the, the person doing the most mundane job. Paul is saying, your Lord is the same Lord. Uh, his master is your master. And the one who is master over us all is not a person who shows partiality. He doesn't care about pedigrees. He doesn't care about the job on the name tag on the door. He doesn't care about whether yours is the corner office or the the worst office in the building. He doesn't care. That, that's not what motivates the Lord. It's not the way he looks at us. He sees us all as, in that way, equal before him. And that, brothers and sisters, was a radically different way of thinking. And it was that way of thinking which, over time, 
that idea of radical equality, that idea of, of our being level before the Lord, that over time shapes civilization and societies and nations and brought England in the early 1800s to say there will be no more slavery among us. It's what we fought a war about. It was the, the earliest proponents of the end of slavery in our country. Now, there were Christians on both sides, but the earliest proponents to end slavery in this country were Christians who were motivated by the kinds of things that Paul says here, the kinds of things we see in Jesus' life and work that changed cultures and societies and nations and whole civilizations. And you know what? It's ongoing. It is ongoing. We're still being shaped by the Holy Spirit applying, changing, transforming the way we view our life at work, our life at home, changing us, making us become a little bit more like Jesus. And it seems to take time. That's the way it's worked out. And there have been, there've been moments where we jump ahead and there have been moments where we fall behind. But God is at work. God is changing. And it's interesting, the very critics of slavery who slammed the Bible because Paul didn't do enough to end slavery are the beneficiaries. We're all the beneficiaries of a line of teaching that over time has transformed us all. And has actually helped form the way we look at our relationships with equality and mutual respect. We get sometimes very impatient with Paul over the very things Paul taught us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very things he taught us, we get impatient with him. Just didn't quite say enough, Paul. Didn't quite do enough, Paul. But all that transforming work is because of Paul and the apostles, the Lord Jesus himself, and ultimately the Holy Spirit changing us, making us more and more like Christ. Well, my prayer for you at your job tomorrow, and where's Laura? Laura, at work tomorrow, okay? <laughs> Laura Laura's really does a good job at living this out. But all of us, all of us at work tomorrow is our chance to take a deep breath and to enter into this world of work and to do it with a different attitude, maybe just a tiny different attitude, the way we approach that relationship and everything else we do in life. That all of it, every single relationship is impacted by what Jesus Christ has done for us. His blood poured out for us makes a difference in the way we do Everything that we do, everything that we do in life, at home and at work, is shaped by him.